Oh, hello. You wincing princes. You tortured paupers. Are you ready to play Portuguese tennis in the jocular rockery that is the Blind Boy podcast? How the fuck are you getting on? What's the crack? I've had a very, very busy week. Very, very, very busy. I was over in London. Working too hard. Last week. Uh, shooting, shooting some stuff for television. But working 16, 17 hour days. And not giving myself correct amounts of rest. And there was some type of flu flying around the gaff. And I managed to catch it. And I don't know if you can hear it in my voice now. It's very interesting flu actually. It has a lot of character. Started off uh, yesterday in my chest. Then it left my chest and it went to my throat this morning. And now it has occupied my ears and nose. And I can't really hear anything. And my balance is off. But I, I often enjoy moments of illness because it allows me little brief pockets of pausing in my otherwise turbulent life Um, thing with London and me I always end every time I go to London if I'm I'm always being brought over there by somebody whether it's a TV company or a theatre or something so I get collected from the airport by taxi drivers and every time I always end up in a ridiculous conversation with the taxi drivers it just happens I don't know how it just does I think they look at me and they know this is a man who likes a chat so anyway the two best conversations I've had in taxis in London happen to have been with uh, Muslim taxi drivers the first conversation I had it was last week and the taxi driver was Kurdish he was sound as fuck and I think it was the Irish thing. I think it's because he knew that I was Irish. He was like, oh, the Irish, the Irish, you, you support the Kurds. And we're like, yeah, there's a history of that. And now, what I didn't want to tell him, like he was talking about, you know, old school republicanism. Where, you know, the Ra would have solidarity with the Palestinian people and the Kurdish people. I didn't want to tell him that Ireland now is actually quite Islamophobic and very much against refugees whether you're Arab or Kurdish or whatever the fuck even last week I learned not last week this morning the people of Listoon Varna in Clare 93% of the town voted against leaving some Syrian refugees to get refuge in their town which was a bit disappointing considering the history of Ireland and our emigration and the thing is you look up the history lads of when the Irish were emigrating to England or emigrating to America throughout the years we the same fears and criticisms that are brought against the Islamic refugees today were brought against the Irish we were supposedly going to bring disease rape and crime wherever we lay our hats and in America in particular in the 17th 18th and 19th centuries it was like we were we were portrayed as uh, coming from a culture that was incompatible with American culture, that we came from such war-torn barbarism that we would not be able to adjust to polite American society. And the Yanks used to make cartoons about the Irish that depicted us as apes and monkeys. 
with bombs strapped to ourselves. And yeah, that sounds an awful lot like what right-wing media kind of say about refugees today. And what Carl Jung would call it is the exposure of our shadow side, that humans have this darkness within them. And when they're confronted with a fear, they will project their darkness onto the source of that fear. And that's our shadow side. It's an archetype. Of course it's an archetype. I mean, if the exact specific fears that the Americans had of the Irish three, four hundred years ago, or two hundred years ago, are now identical to the fears that the Irish or the British have against Islamic refugees... If those fears manifest themselves in an identical fashion, such as the fear of they will bring rape, they will bring bombs, they will bring violence, then it's probably an archetypal fear. It's an eternal boogeyman that exists in human consciousness when we are presented with an influx of people who are different. So therefore you might say it's quite a natural response. Do you know it probably is a natural response? Racism probably is a natural response to things, but just because something's a natural response doesn't mean it's the right response. You can overcome that with compassion and logic. And if you're Irish, you can overcome it with direct empathy. Because 30 years ago, I had older brothers that were living in London who were followed around the place because of their accents or you know, would have been stopped and searched because of their accents. And when you think of it like that, when you think that it was your uncles or your brothers or your aunts who would have been seen as terrorists because of their accents 30 years ago, that kind of puts the whole into the whole thing into, the, into an absurdist perspective. Do you know what I mean? So it's disappointing to see Irish people ignorant of that element of our history and it's even more disappointing when I see Irish people virtue signalling about the famine and then saying refugees are not welcome it's like fuck off will you cop on yourselves but anyway I got talking to this lad in the car this uh, taxi driver the Kurdish taxi driver And he just kind of opened up and he started talking to me. And he said some very interesting things. And he's the second Muslim taxi driver I've met who is highly critical of, we'll say, the wealthier Muslim countries. He had no time whatsoever for, like, the Qataris or Saudi Arabia or United Arab Emirates. And... He'd said some very fucking interesting things, right? Now, he could have been a compulsive liar as well. I can't tell. But he was telling me that these pure wealthy Qatari women come over to... Qatari and Saudi Arabian women, they come and visit London, you know? And they'd have husbands, but they'd be strict Islamic women. And he told me that when they come to London they have affairs and that he has affairs with them and he says that he'd be driving them around in the back of the taxi and that because in their lives they wouldn't even speak to another man other than their husband that the very act of talking 
is considered intimate. And eye contact, they wouldn't normally make eye contact with men. So he says when they sit in the back of his car, he looks into the mirror and they look into it too and then they get talking. And he told me apparently he's had a few affairs with very wealthy Arab women in London. He then went on to tell me that he worked with MI5 um, in the area in London that he was in. So he could have been a spoofer. He could have been a liar. But, do you know, when you're talking to someone who's either who's a bullshitter and you don't care because the stories they're telling you are so good, you just listen. And he was one of these fellas. Could have, been t- could have been telling the truth as well. But he said one thing that was very interesting. So he was talking about Islam, you know? And... The one thing he was, and it's, this is, it, but the one thing he was saying is that he said Islam is all about peace and it's about sharing and it's about love. He said that's all Islam is: peace, sharing, and love. That's the bones of it. And he said something that took me aback. He said that, in his experience as a Kurdish man, as a former refugee, he came to London in the in the nineties. Um, I'm guessing during Saddam Hussein's time, because Saddam wasn't a big fan of the Kurds in the nineties. But he said that he considers Europeans to be the true Muslims. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? What do you mean? And he says, I came to England as a Kurdish refugee and I was welcomed with open arms. And he said that even in his own country where he was born, he was born in northern Iraq where the Kurds are, he's not even considered a citizen. He said that the European people kind of embrace the loving and caring, uh, welcoming part of Muslim, of Islam, more than Islamic countries do. He said that in the likes of Saudi Arabia and Qatar and United Arab Emirates, that if you're a Muslim from a poor country, that you're simply not welcome. And if you're a Kurd, you're, especially, you're simply not welcome. But in his experience, he also lived in, I think it was France. He said that in his experience, European people are very, very welcoming and sound and are like, have some of what I have if you're in need. Whereas he he didn't have the same thing to say about the wealthier Muslim countries, which was a bit of an eye-opener for me, because I don't know a hell of a lot about Islam, or I don't even know that many Islamic people. So that was the first most interesting conversation with an Islamic taxi driver that I had with in in London now here's the second one and this is the most interesting this happened about four or five years ago I was getting collected from the airport and it was a nice long drive and this time my taxi driver was from Afghanistan and he was sound as fuck and he started sparking up a conversation with me and again I think the Irish thing led to some degree of trust or something we had a bit of crack and a bit of banter and he kind of starts repeating the same kind of stuff like he, he's a, a poor Afghani dude he zeroes respect for the richer Arab Islamic countries he used, he's telling me that they were total bullshitters that they don't believe in Islam that what they believe in is money and power and they use Islam for their advantage so I was leaving him rant away and I was listening with my ears open And then, out of nowhere, he comes out with this fucking mad hot take. 
and he says, Bin Laden wasn't killed in 2011. So I go, fuck. Ears wide open. So your man is, he's either a lunatic or a spoofer or whatever, but I'm listening. So he says, Bin Laden wasn't killed in 2011. Now if you remember, Osama Bin Laden was killed in northern Pakistan in 2011 by SEAL Team 6 Special Forces. They flew into his compound and they took him out, they killed him. And Obama announced it in 2011. And this was huge news, it was massive news all over the world. And they made that film Zero Dark Thirty about it and everything. Using the most highly trained, specialised US special forces lads in the world. So when this Afghani taxi driver says Bin Laden wasn't killed in 2011 at all, I'm all fucking ears. So I'm like, what do you mean? Please tell. So he says, Bin Laden was killed in about 2005 in Pakistan and they covered it up. They hid it because they wanted to keep the war going. So I'm still listening going, all right, let's hear him justify himself. Then he says, did you know that most of the members of Team uh, SEAL Team 6 who killed Bin Laden, do you know that most of those lads died a year later? And I'm like, no, I never heard of that. And he goes, yeah, they played it down in the media. So I take out my phone and I look at it. And yes, the majority of the team who killed Bin Laden died a year later in Afghanistan their helicopter was shot down so immediately I'm like holy fuck why wasn't this all over the news this is pretty big why wasn't it on the news because I, I didn't hear it at the time and the thing is too is that the war in Afghanistan has been going on for 15 years and for a war of its length there's really not that many American casualties so this particular helicopter that was shot down in Afghanistan it had 30 US soldiers on it most of whom were these special forces elite SEAL Team 6 so you'd expect this to be all over the fucking news when it happens that's massive loss to US soldiers so I'm all ears at this stage for this taxi driver so I'm like looking at my phone going fuck me yes they, they were killed a year later why didn't we find out and he says it was covered up and then I said to him how do you know all this shit and he says, the area where SEAL Team 6's helicopter was shot down, he said, I come from near that area in Afghanistan. And apparently, the Taliban shot down the SEAL Team 6 helicopter. But he said, I have an idea who the Taliban are in that area. They're just a load of lads with sheep and the odd machine gun. They're owl lads. They don't have the type of fucking rockets to be shooting down US Special Forces helicopters. It's not in their ability to do it. They're just lads with sheep in the Taliban with AK-47s. So he claims the CIA shot down their own lads over in in Afghanistan as a cover-up because they knew that Bin Laden wasn't actually killed in 2011, that Bin Laden was actually killed in 2005. So... Apparently, Bin Laden was killed in May of 2011. And then three months later, the lads who supposedly killed him all ended up dead in Afghanistan. And also, the if you know anything about the, the raid that killed Bin Laden, 
one of the helicopters they had crashed on the night in Bin Laden's compound. And the taxi driver said they just simply did this to leave evidence for when the world media came upon the compound that there was the remnants of this crashed helicopter to show that the team had actually been in this northern Pakistani compound because no body was ever produced for Bin Laden. Apparently they just came, killed him, took his body, fucked off onto an aircraft carrier and threw it into the sea. And that's what this taxi driver was maintaining to me. And I don't know, he could be nuts. But all I'm saying is that some of his story checked out when I was Googling it. I thought it was insane. But, you know, it's a pure conspiracy theory. That's the, you know, that's the second taxi driver I've met. First one said that he has sex with rich Qatari brides and works for MI5. And the other guy's got a conspiracy theory about the death of Bin Laden. So either I meet the most interesting cunts imaginable when I'm in London or... Islamic London taxi drivers are very, very bored people who like to rip the absolute piss out of fellas like me who are gullible and just want a good story. But after he told me the Bin Laden story anyway, he took me to where I was staying and he turned off the meter and he drove me around. He deliberately drove me around uh, Knightsbridge, which is the area in London where the Qatari royal family own Arabs and shit, and there's a lot of rich, young Arabs hanging around there. And he pulled outside a bar, and there was lots of young people in there drinking and having crack. And he just pointed out, he was pointing at all the people there, and he says, you see that fella, he's a prince, you see her, she's a princess. And he was just making the point that these were kind of hardcore Islamic people from rich countries who give the impression of adhering to their religious beliefs but here they are in London drinking alcohol and wearing short skirts and living a free life but contradicting what they so vehemently defend in their own religion which I found quite interesting again he could have been spoofing I don't know if these people were princes or princesses at all he could have been talking out of his hoop and getting a rise out of me. So. I hope my fucking stupid voice hasn't been pissing you off. So what I'm going to do with this podcast. Is. A couple of weekends ago. In Limerick. I spoke to the writer Kevin Barry. And Kevin is. I've mentioned him before. Kevin's quite possibly the greatest living writer in the world. And a lot of literary cunts would agree with me. Um, go and pick up some of Kevin's books, if you haven't already. Maybe start off at one of his short story collections, like Dark Lies the Island. And then move on to the more advanced stuff, such as City of Bohan, and his most recent book, Beetlebone, which is an utter masterpiece. But Kevin is someone who I look up to, because he's a limerick writer. And I wrote my book of short stories last year. And to be honest, it was Kevin's writing that inspired me to start writing. Um, It was Kevin's writing that made me believe that, Jesus, I could have a crack at this myself because of how he uses dialogue. Kevin writes with a limerick brain, do you know? He writes, Kevin does for kind of, he does for limerick 
the Limerick accent, what Joyce did for the Dublin accent. He brings the lyricism of that accent to the page. And his stories are class. So I had a really, really enjoying one-hour interview with Kevin, which I'm going to play you shortly. Before I do, um, please continue to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Please continue to leave reviews and ratings of the podcast on iTunes. I can't stress that enough. I really need you to do that because... I'm looking for a sponsor and shit, so that stuff, that's why I need you to do that. And it only takes you two seconds, so if you're enjoying the podcast, please do that. If you're thoroughly enjoying the podcast and would like to contribute to it, now you don't have to, I'm appealing to your soundness, please uh, donate the price of a coffee or the price of a pint. For five hours of content a month, would you give me the price of a pint? And if you'd like to give me the price of a pint, go to patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast and donate me the price of a pint for five hours of content a month, which I think is a fairly fair deal. And if you can't afford it, you don't have to pay it. This is free. All I'm doing is appealing to your soundness, a suggested donation. So anyway, this recording of uh, my interview with Kevin Barry happened a couple of weeks ago in Dolan's Warehouse in Limerick at um, the Limerick Spring Festival, which is a celebration of literature and arts in Limerick. But interestingly, um, me and Kev are both from Limerick. And what we'd done before we recorded the podcast interview is we had each read one of our short stories to a live Limerick audience. And bizarrely, we both chose stories that were about Cork. I have a story called Reha Corky about skinning Rory Gallagher in the 70s. And Kevin had a story set in Cork about a man who builds a nest for himself up above in an attic. So bizarrely, uh, we two Limerick writers had come to Limerick and read a couple of stories about Cork, which had a wonderful irony to it. And reverberated Limerick's low sense of self-esteem to the audience, which had a quite dark humour to it. So without further ado, here is uh, Kevin Barry reading a little bit of his short story and then an interview. Yart. This is no kind of peace for a young man. What I would like very much is a small house of my own. Ideally it would have an aspect such as this one. I realised I could hardly hope for these high windows again, but a place where I could close the door on the world and dead bolt it and go each evening into a place silent as a lung that I might sit among my own thoughts in a place of no distraction. And I wanted to be above the city so that I can see the palm of the city fill up with its lights because after all the winter will soon come. And the days as often would be grey and dark and it's inhospitable here sometimes unless we make our pods in which we can travel above it and ride through the skies of the winter until the year again turns on its slow wheel and brings us back to the springtime again and then once more the city will be made out of birds and light.
Thanks very much. Cork has gone down well, isn't it? What the yeah. fuck? <coughs> what are we at? I don't know, man. Jesus Christ, how did this happen? <laughs> yeah. we, we, didn't, like, we didn't talk about what, like, the one word we had is before we went on stage, he was inside taking a slash, and I, <laughs> I roared across at him and I said, Kev, I'm going out doing a very weird story about skinning Rory Gallagher. Are you, are you, is that too weird for you to follow? And he goes, no, I've got something that's weird as well. It's grand. <laughs> what the fuck? Two Limerick lads at the Limerick fucking know, festival. Yeah. And now we're after both of us come up with Cork stories. What's going on? It's strange. And both Cork stories yeah. that have an element of taxidermy. You know, yeah. <laughs> Jesus, man. Fucking fist bump on that, I think. Yeah. But um, do you know, actually, a good thing to talk about is accents, right? Yeah. Because, like... You've I always a lovely think Cork accent, man. I can do. I was there long enough to do one, yeah. But it was. I always think like Cork and Limerick accents are kind. In a funny way, they're close enough. They're kind of cousinly, right? Cork sounds like um, a Limerick person who's after receiving a bit of good news. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there is. There is. There is that. There's. There is the small bit of fucking. But there, it, it's exactly right because there is that sort of. When I moved to Cork in the nineties, what amazed me about the place was they all liked it. And in Limerick at the time, we were very cynical about Limerick. Oh, fucking yeah. awful place this is, you know. And well, we've just, you know, like yeah. I said, we brought after writing stories about <laughs> fucking Cork. Like, why didn't we write yeah. Limerick stories? Yeah. But the mad thing with, with, with accents in Ireland is, you know, it's a small country geographically. If, if you have a car, it's like five hours long and three hours wide. But the accents change so dramatically, so quickly. And when the accent changes, everything else changes as well. Like, yeah. the soul changes, you know. Um, and the humour really importantly changes. Um, so like the Limerick accent is going to give a humour that's kind of really antic and madcap and surreal and twisted. Like you couldn't come from anywhere else. No, you know no, what I mean? No, no. <laughs> no. But then you, you go out the road a bit and you might be half an hour out in Clare and there's a different accent and there's a different, different humour entirely. Humor, yeah. you know, it's just completely unpredictable the way it works. But like you just came back from Austin. Yeah, yeah. Like, Is it like that with the Yanks? Like, Is it like, all right, so fucking Texas is... Bigger than Cork, like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, like, but, like, Texas is massive. <laughs> like, do they have this... Like, that's what I always wonder about fucking Ireland. Like, Ireland is the size of a pizza. Yeah. And, like, we have all these different accents within yeah. this small... Like, is that... America doesn't seem to have that, or can we just not hear it? Yeah. Are any, any Yanks? <laughs> are, are, can you tell the difference of an accent from in America if it's only, like, half an hour down the road? Yeah, see, there you no. go. No. And it's mad, actually. Someone, I was talking to someone out there from Armagh, and their friend was from Cork, and they said people they talked to couldn't tell the difference between their accent to us because just fucking Well, nuts, I know, you know that, like, Dublin people can't tell the difference between Cork, Kerry, and, and Limerick, like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, come on, imagine saying that to us, like. But <laughs> you, you can smell a Kerry man's accent, like. <laughs> I, I read a, an interesting thing recently about, um, apparently, the Australian accent, right? Mm developed, it's, it's a, a mixture of the Irish and English accent when they're too drunk. Wow. That the, the Australian accent comes from drunk Irish and English people. Yeah. There's the mad one as well in Newfoundland, which is like, mm. it's a Waterford accent from the 1890s. Yeah. Which has been just islanded off. And it like, you, you wouldn't hear it now in Waterford, but you go out there and it's this kind of antique, kind it's of like really It's like an lovely. antique language. Yeah. There's um, one thing I was learning, not, not a language thing, but there's, there was a dialect spoken in Wexford called mm. Yola. Yeah. Right, and yeah. it was basically like Wexford is on the it's on the right hand side of I don't know fucking east it's on the right hand side of Ireland, <laughs> but <laughs> when the when the Normans when the Normans invaded Ireland first Strongbow and the lads right, they first landed in Wexford so there was pockets of this was fucking the 1100s there was pockets of Normans who essentially spoke French they would have spoken an early French at the time they didn't speak English because that was a, a language beneath them. 
But uh, it was. They were, they were posh French boys. And they hated <laughs> the Brits. But the Normans, when they came to Wexford, they spoke a little bit of French. And then this small community preserved itself up until about 200 years ago called the Yola community, mm. where it was half French and half Gaelic. Mm. And there's only one word we have left from that, langu that language, and it's called queer. Well, yeah, the word yeah, yeah. queer is from there. Yola. That's it. That's the only, only word left. Yeah, Sean Lynch, the artist, has, has done something about that. He is was he? telling me about it, I think. Yeah, he was mentioning it. Today. Sean's yeah. a guest cunt. He's brilliant. Yeah, he yeah, is. I was over yeah. at the, the Venice Biennale with him. Right, uh, yeah. You did he's a, a bit, mad bastard. Yeah. I was only looking at I, I, what I did for questions. We have officially started the podcast, by the way. Hello. Did you get, did you get a sponsor yet? Did I get a sponsor for the, for the podcast? podcast? Yeah. Not yet, no. I mean, What's no. wrong with him, man? What's, what's it's just wrong? Ireland. Ireland's behind yeah. the times. Yeah. Uh, the other thing as well, what I heard is that I speak about mental health a lot on my podcast, right, yeah, and that, yeah. that can frighten off uh, sponsors. Well, they're very conservative. See, what it is as well is they think, oh, he's going to say something mad. He's right? going to say something And you mad, are, yeah. right? Okay. <laughs> but it's going to... And uh, what will be associated then? But I don't know. Someone will, someone will do it. I want Brennan's nice bread. It, Try Brennan's bread or Brennan's something. Brennan's bread or just... <laughs> Today's takes today, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but... I was asking the internet for some questions for you, okay. and then as I pulled out of my book, um, it's the sheet of questions from my last live podcast guest, oh, well. who was, uh, he was a, a Protestant walking tour man up in the, the troubled areas of Belfast. So I was thinking, I might ask Kevin Barry some of the questions. Yeah. That I'm looking. So anyway, Kevin Barry, what are the feelings around punishment beatings and shootings that were dished out during the <laughs> Especially to minors. And if anyone has apologised or been paid compensation, a subject that is glossed over, in my humble opinion. Well, John, I, I did a reading a few years ago in Belfast in a pub on the Falls Road. And it was the annual kind of... It was the annual kind of Shinners kind of Republican Arts Festival. And I, I, I had City of Bohan with me, and I, and I thought, they're, oh, they're going to love this. It's very funny. And I, started, I read a really funny bit, of, and I didn't click at all about people from the north having a fight with people from the south of the city. Yeah. Stone cold fucking faces. Looking at me for 20 minutes, didn't go to the Were they offended you know? or were they violence? They were, you could see them thinking this is all fucking metaphorical now about the north. It never occurred to and me. Nothing and, to do with, and now, here's know. a fucking question I want to know Is City of Bohan about Limerick or Cork? It's it's a weird kind of um, hybrid of the two. It's somewhere around Charleville, I think. Um, <laughs> it's kind of in between. Like I, I see it more like Limerick, kind of late eighties, early nineties, around the docks and stuff. But I hear the Bohan accent as a more corky kind of yeah, slightly floatier kind of sing song. I try and read Bohan in a Limerick accent, and it often doesn't work. I think it goes floatier and, and corky yeah. kind of in the accent. Charleville is a fucking weird place, isn't it? Deeply strange. They can't park a car. In they can't, and, and they have... Um, out in the middle of the road, just abandoned all the time. <laughs> going to, it's like, they have mm -hmm. a population of... Uh, there's an animal called a polecat. Yeah, have it's, they them in Charleville? It, only Charleville. Yeah. It's, like, it's, it's not quite a pine martin, and it's not quite a weasel. Yeah. And it's just polecats, and they climb up trees. And that's, that's all I know about Charleville. Well, I've heard there's some, something going on with cheese... But for me, it's the land of the polecat. I had a, I had a mink in our field alongside the house because I, I live now in a swamp up in County Sligo. And, um, and they're Do you know vicious. They're, only they're only mink in the winter. And what are they in the summer? Ferrets. <laughs> no, no, sorry, sorry. No, hold on, hold on. I, I, I'm going to have to question no, 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 the science no, 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 no. now. No, I tell you, no, 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 no. No, <laughs> no this is... This is uh, the, the, it's, it's the same animal and it has two different names depending on the time of year, which I fucking love about it. So in summer... It's brown and it's known as a mink. Yeah. And then in winter, it's called an ermine. 
Yeah. But it's the same oh, animal right. with two that's fucking right. names. Yeah, yeah. They're American. They came in for the fur farms in the 70s. They did, yeah. They're fucking and, they're, and vulture funds. And they're vicious little fuckers. You yeah. Know? Oh, they're very yeah. vicious. So I asked the farmer next door, I said, Jesus, Pat, what will I do about this, this mink in the garden? You know, what will I do? If, Play you know? cards with him. No, right? <laughs> what he said was, Kevin, the best thing you could do now, he said, is um, get a cage in the co-op and get a gun. And once he's in the cage, shoot him. <laughs> right? And I was fucking delighted. And I went to the, into the house to Olivia and I said, he thinks I'm capable of trapping and shooting a mink. <laughs> right? The best part I, is I'd never felt so cage, fucking like. male in my life. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking, right, I'm going to sort out this mink. But he, he just went off after a while. My but the dad. great thing was there wasn't a rat for miles around. Oh, yeah. The yeah. rats just leg it. They're phenomenal. Away. Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, my, my, dad used to, my dad used to do this thing. He was from West Cork. And All he used right. to do this thing which he would call lamping rabbits. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he'd be talking when I was growing up, oh, we used to go lamping rabbits. And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about, lamping rabbits? <laughs> but what it used to be is they'd get um, a, a, like a motorcycle bike uh, floodlight yeah. and a battery on the back. And they'd point it at rabbits, and the rabbits would startle, and then they'd have Jack Russells after the rabbits. Amazing, but what yeah. they do, used to do as well is they would have ferrets, right? And so they'd put nets all over the holes in the warrens. Hmm and they'd send one ferret down after the rabbits. But then they would have to send a Jack Russell after the ferret because if the ferret got stuck down the warren, they would kill every rabbit and suck all the blood out of them. Yeah, and then you yeah. can't sell a rabbit yeah. with no blood inside yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, not in Cork right. anyway. Yeah. <laughs> they, used to, <laughs> they, used to do, they used to go lamping in the Glen in Cork City up to the 90s. They still the, saying lamping in the 90s? Up in the 90s. And they, some of them be on scooters things, but the classiest guy had like... He had a customised Volkswagen Beetle because the engine is in the back, right? So he had someone driving it and he had the front, he had an armchair kind of glued on to the front <laughs> and he had a shotgun and he'd be going around and be like, lights, lights, come on, he'd shoot a rabbit. And it's really weird we bring it up because he was the fella I heard was building a nest in his apartment with furs. I knew someone who Go lived. Away. I knew of someone who lived in a house with him, and he said we figured it out. About every October, November, he starts coming in with a load of fucking furs and kind of bits of twigs and bits of straw. We got Jesus Christ, he's building a fucking nest up there. Like it was on Ballyhooley Road in Cork in the late nineties. I hope he's still up there. All I can I think about he's... is him fucking laying eggs. Then no, <laughs> just take it from there. Just... Fucking hell! I, and yeah, have you heard of lamping? Dazzling. dazzling. That oh, that's word? a nice way of doing it, yeah. East Cork, it's dazzling, and West Cork, it's lamping. Yeah. And then they have the dazzling and lamping festival in between in Charleville. Yeah. <laughs> that's spot event this year, I think it's going to be. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but my, yeah, my dad fucking, uh, he burnt the shirt off his back with a, <laughs> with a, a, a dazzling battery. <laughs> he did, yeah. He, was, he had a, a big battery in his back for the dazzling, and the acid leaked out. Yeah. And only for the cheap silk, or no, cheap sh polyester shirt, it saved his back from getting burnt with acid. So he came back home from, from lamping, and, yeah. and he, he'd, he'd no shirt on his back because the acid uh, blew it off. Shirt, look, what have we got now, Facebook? <laughs> <laughs> that was his Facebook, burning his back with a battery acid. <laughs> Hold on now a second. All right, and this is another question. What's the crack with Protestants? Okay, I, I can actually... I have to wait to open my phone for the Kevin Barry question, so I'm just going to... Actually, I was, I, was, I was out on my bike up in, up in um, Sligo. I was in Leitrim, right? And I, I was uh, just going around on the bike. And I again started talking to this guy, started a farmer in the field. And we were talking all about... Because it was very near Fermanagh. Yeah. And we started talking all about Catholics and Protestants, right? And he said, do you know that even the dry stone walls have religion? 
right? Go ahead. Because he said, and he showed me, and he said, I'll show you a Catholic wall, right? And he's, he brought me to the field and he showed me, and there was this wall, and it, like, it started off really well, you know? <laughs> it was kind of really neat and well arranged, and it was going very well, and about 25 yards into the field, you could tell your man just, what the fuck it, you know? <laughs> and he said, now I'm going to show you a Protestant wall. And we went down the road and he showed me this wall and it went on for fucking miles. <laughs> Over fucking dales and uphills and everything. And he said, do you want to see a Presbyterian wall? I said, no way. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm going home, you know, but it's uh, even and, in the And was the, was the Protestant wall neat? It was perfect. The one that's stone out of place, you know. Because like, they were all about uh, taking the decor out of the churches and making it very functional and straightforward. Austere forward. Protestant like the, chapels. A yeah. Calvinist chapel. Cal mm. Calvinist chapel is just like a, a box. <laughs> Yeah, Do you know what uh, I mean? Not a stained glass window in sight. No, uh, that was uh, almost like the, what you call that golden cow carry yeah. on, you know? We, not the Catholics, the, just, the, yeah, the Catholics were all the sexy bleeding Jesus, you know, that was the kind of... Sexy bleeding uh, Jesus, yeah, yeah. yeah. What's the deal with the fucking flaming heart? And, and the loincloth and all that stuff going on, yeah, it's very strange what you'd be growing up with. Um, so now we're going to get on to the Kevin Barry questions because right. I have my phone open. Okay. So these are questions from the internet directed towards your ears. Okay. And you're going to answer them out of your mouth. Right. Um, what inspired you to write? Um, I think most people who write do it are kind of... I actually have a theory that most writers are either really bad singers or failed musicians. I think writing fiction, writing stories is a kind of a displacement activity when you can't sing songs or play the piano, you know? Well, my musical career's gone tits up and I just released the book. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> There you are. I, I'm convinced of it, you know, because it's... I do think writing stories is a kind of musical form, in a weird way. That's Absolutely. how you do it. You follow, you follow it, you're looking for the tune of it, or the melody of it, line by line, you're trying to hear it. Um, but Joyce, Joyce was uh, obsessed with fucking opera singers. He used to be obsessed with... Uh, did you ever hear John McCormack? Yeah, the Count. Did you ever uh, listen to John McCormack? Yeah. Oh, what a gas cunt. Yeah. I love listening to John McCormack. He's a, he's a, he's a great YouTube hole. He's a wonderful... At four what, in the morning. And yeah. what I love, too, is... Uh, like, John McCormack, he would have been knocking around, what, 1920s, 1930s? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you listen to... Like, John McCormack was ridiculously popular, right? In the States as well as in Ireland, right? But if you listen to American popular music from, like, 1916, uh, early 1920s, you'll hear, like, singers with, like, Jewish names, and they sing in an Irish accent. Oh, yeah. So, like, in the way now that if you listen to popular music, all singers will sound like black Americans. Mm they'll take on an R&B twang. Mm. The Irish twang was the thing to do in pop music in 1916, 1917, yeah. because of John McCormack. Yeah, he was Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tom Waits is a huge fan of him. Mm. Yeah, I know you can see it in a kind of continuum and, and the way that stuff kind of perseveres, but it's... Um, are you doing any music now, Blind Boy? Are you kind of... The odd bit, I'm tipping away, but to be honest, after I got the writing bug, yeah. it's just, it's less complicated, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, what I find with music is, is you have a set of lyrics, yeah. right? And then you have actual music, and the music itself can dictate the emotion yeah. of what the listener hears. But when you've got just writing uh, on a piece of paper, on a page, yeah. the emotive tone of it is, is down to the reader. Yeah. And I'm, I like uh, participatory art. I like yeah. art whereby the meaning of it is not just created by the author, but created by the space in between the reader mm. and the fucking writer. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Mm. But with, with music, you're kind of... I just feel you're controlling the emotions of the listener too right. much. Yeah. Like yeah. A, a song like ours, like fucking... I don't know, Dad's Best Friend, the song yeah. we have, right? It's a very aggressive song. Yeah. And the lyrics are very aggressive and the music is very aggressive. But I often wonder, what would that be like just as a poem? Yeah, do you know? Uh, yeah, I think what I, what I see reading your stories, I think, is um, that you you do it and approach it, and definitely in the same kind of way I do, which is realizing that that fiction or drama or whatever you're writing, it doesn't come from the front part of your brain; it comes from the weird kind oh, of subconscious yeah. places at Fuck the back. Yeah. It's a waking know? dream. Yeah, and you're just trying to channel into that in some kind of way without being distracted by other things. And I think that's why a lot of writers find after a while that they kind of, they like to write first thing in the morning because mm -hmm. you're still in that kind of melty, dreamy kind of state. And also I find before, you're not afraid to, when you're still half asleep or half awake, you're kind of not afraid to embarrass yourself, you know, yeah. and you put anything down on the page. And it's weird when you look back but over a story you've You also written. haven't interacted with other people. Yeah. When you get straight up in the morning, right, as mm -hmm. soon as you leave your door and say hello to Mrs. O'Reilly, yeah you're immediately into your state of, I'm around people now and I yeah. must have a guard up sure, and yeah. I must be normal. Yeah. But when you get straight out of beds... And just start doing it. Yeah, and you've just, you could have just had a, a dream about riding dinosaurs through Star Wars, yeah. like, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's just, it's, it's kind of trying to keep it unguarded. And I think sometimes when people start writing first, they look back over it and they come across all these bits that embarrass them and go, oh, Jesus, I didn't say that, and start cutting them out, you know? But actually How the, are you with that now? Well, I think what I've come to realise is that the bits that really embarrass you and make you recoil in horror from the page, that, those are the good bits. You know, those oh, are the, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. when you're getting at the real stuff that kind of went, oh, Jesus, can I put that down? And you have to, you know? So it's just, yeah, it's... I don't know, I mean, I, I, like I was writing in my, in my 20s and stuff, but in a fairly kind of undisciplined way. You How know? are you now looking back? Because you were a journalist in your 20s. I was, yeah, I used to do... Like, I started in Limerick. I used to do Limerick District Court and all that. Um, <laughs> Which I tell you, put fucking hairs on your chest in 1989. Um, but it was uh, the, the greatest day of the year, actually, at Limerick District Court in the late 80s. It was Thursday morning, it would sit, and it would be the, the week after the 2FM beating the street was on. Electric Eddie. In town, you know? Because the evidence table would be just fucking groaning with all the weaponry that had been confiscated at the, at the beating the street. But it was great. It was... It was um, I, I was really struck by, by Shane, who goes as dark as it a while ago. Yeah. His last piece, especially about the river, you know. Um, and sometimes thinking about Limerick and thinking about places like City of Bohan um, came to me because I remembered a conversation I had with, with the late Jim Kemi. Was he kind of before your time Jim, a bit? No, yeah. but our, like my dad, was a, my dad was a communist as such. So yeah. he, he was a really a, a friend and a good right. fan of Jim Kemi, yeah. Oh, he was a brilliant guy, you know. And yeah. he was kind of, I remember meeting him one day down around Poor Man's Kilkee. And it was at the end of a really fairly troubled 
time in the city. There'd been lots of trouble and feuds and all that sort of stuff going on. And I remember saying to him, Jim, what the fuck is wrong with the place? What to be wrong with us, you know? And he said, I don't know. He said, but I think it's coming in off the river. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and I took that line as the first line for City of Bohan, whatever is wrong with us, is coming in off the river. But often I think it's the places have these kind of trapped auras or energies or reverberations that come from history and that come from human feelings settling down into our places and kind of permeating all that's gone on in what we kind of perceive as the present moment, you know? That's, uh, you have that exact theory in Beetlebone. Yeah, yeah. Which I, I mean, fucking love, because it was man, like, yeah. um, there was a bang of Flan O'Brien off it, which I yeah. love, but not in a derivative way. It was yeah. like a little nod to Flan, where you had the character talking about you walk across certain patches, and this patch in the art contains all its previous misery. Right, yeah. Which yeah. I fucking love that. But, yeah, there's this weird thing with Limerick, with like, and it goes back to Shane's piece, uh, blaming the river, you know? Yeah. But the theory that I have, we'd say, with the river and Limerick is there's two things that can cause the human brain to go into a very contemplative space, right? And that's fire and water, mm. right? Even <clears throat> if we look back at human evolution, um, they study human tools, right? We've been behaviorally, no, we've, yeah, we've been behaviorally modern for about 50,000 years. So 50,000 years ago, there was people walking around the exact same as us. Mm. No different, exact same, same brains, same bodies. And they looked at the tools that humans were making. And for about 30,000 years, the tools were the exact same. 30,000 fucking years now. Remember, Christ is only 2,000 years ago, so 30,000, that's insane. But same simple tools over and over. Then something happened about 15, 20,000 years ago where there was an absolute massive explosion in creativity. Mm. And anthropologists and paleontologists are going, what fucking happened that caused human technology to explode? And they reckon it was the invention of fire. Mm. Now, there's two theories. Number one is that with the invention of fire, humans had more proteins to right. release when they yeah. started to eat cooked meat. But the other theory is that all of a sudden, with controlled fire, humans had the space to gather around and fire. You know when you have a fire in front of you, you will stare into it. Yeah. it you don't even ask. It will draw you in, yeah. and all of a sudden you're in a waking dream state. So they, some people are claiming that the discovery of fire triggered the, a contemplative, creative thing in the human brain that exploded technology. Yeah. The other thing that will do that is water. So if you are down by the Shannon or whatever and staring into the fucking river, Depending on where your state is at the time, like I, I go down to the river a lot, but I my mental health is in check, so mm. I go to the river and I think happy thoughts. Yeah, yeah. But other people, you can stare into that fucking river or a body of water, and it will cause that same contemplation, mm. and it will draw you inwards. And if the feelings inside yourself are negative, it can draw you towards it. Yeah, it amplifies. Yeah. It amplifies yeah. it, and you always hear people, you know, they went towards the water, or the water dragged them in. Yeah. A drag off it. Yeah, it's like uh, what's really interesting Taking as well. Taking a drag off the Shannon. That's yeah. very interesting now. Yeah, <laughs> but <laughs> what, a, what a watch yourself. But it's um, it's really interesting the way we 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 all we're all inclined to interact with water in a, what becomes a kind of a ritual way. You know, you, I, I do the same walk every day in Sligo where I go to this lake and kind of space out and kind of look out over for a while and go, yeah, grand. And I go back home again. But it's just you it's stare just into a lake. I do. Yeah. Yeah, lakes are alright. Lakes, lakes are... No, but like, yeah. we don't have many lakes in Limerick, do we? I mean, I, I'm, I'm all about rivers because they flow, yeah, but like... Yeah, yeah, the lakes are interesting. Lakes are kind of spooky and kind of haunted feeling as well, you know? Because with a river, there's a in. sense of urgency because it's yeah. always, you know, you look at that piece of river and before you know it, it's gone. Yeah. You know, and I like the sense with a river where it's... 
I love just looking at a river and going, I'm looking at you now, little flap in the water, and you're going to be down... You're going to be out in the ocean. You know what you should do? You should do a travelling podcast down the Lint of the Shannon. In a I would fucking love to. Wouldn't that be a great idea? I'll oh, come on if we're already. Would you? Yeah, the, the, yeah, the two yeah, of us yeah, dissecting good, different ripples. We have to watch out for the minx. Watch out for the, for the minx. Shannon minx. Watch out for the minx. Yeah, yeah. that kind of stuff. Can I have a tap up of my pint, barkeep? Is Neil Dolan around the place? Can I have a new pint, please? Would I, do you want a new pint, Willie? Do you want a new pint, Kevin? No, I'm all right, I'm grand, thanks. So, can Willie have a new one of them? And I, God bless. <laughs> um, you touched there, right, on, you, when you were talking about writing in the mornings, right? Mm. I have a big thing with writing, creative flow. Yeah. When I sit down to a page to write, what I am chasing is the feeling of flow, which is basically I leave my conscious perception and I enter into a waking dream state where mm. the story reveals itself to me. Mm. And that's the only way I know how to write. If I mm. try and write in a cognitive fashion, if I try and plan it out beforehand, it'll be contrived. Yeah. But if I just let it come out, mm. I'll end up with a story and go, fuck me, how did that come out of it? Yeah. Yeah, Is, I, are I've, you the same? Yeah, I, I have near fucking mystical notions about flow and how to kind of engender it and how to make it start happening. You with um, Carl Young? No. <laughs> but I, 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 the thing is, when you start writing stories and when you start making fiction... The first thing it is, it's a, it's a declaration of enormous ego. You're saying, world, shut up and listen. I have something to fucking say, right? Um, and the deal, you have to make this kind of, it sounds a little odd and esoteric, but you have to make a kind of a pact with your own subconscious. And what you're saying to it is, give me stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. Give me material. Um, and my part of the deal as an actual person is I'm going to be available to it and I'm going to treat it like a real fucking job, and I'm going, going to go into this shed in a swamp in Sligo seven days a week, and I'm going to sit there for five hours until something fucking comes. And like most days, it doesn't go great, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, but it's a weird, like Norman Mailder called writing fiction the spooky art, because there's something odd going on, and it seems to give you just enough, just often enough to keep you going back and doing more. And what it often happens is you have four or five really slow, sludgy days where your brain feels like fucking porridge, and then all of a sudden you get a day in the hand that's kind of guided across yeah. the page and the flow comes. But th that's not the day you're writing. The day you're writing are the slow days where you're just sitting there staring out at the rain where it's all kind of <laughs> composting, you know, in, the, in, yeah, the, in yeah. the subconscious. And it's kind of, yeah, it's, 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 it's all about really, I think you have to take it really seriously. Like, my thing is, is like, I don't take myself seriously at all. I'm an idiot, you know, but I, I, I try to take the work very seriously yeah. and, and, and do it. And you can it. separate yeah. yourself from yeah. the work. Yeah. I think it's very wise mm. for anyone doing any work in particular, yeah. separate your own personality from the work because that allows you then to fail. Yeah. Like, how are you with, um, like you spoke there about, you know, you'll, you'll sit down and write and you might do five days mm. of stuff you're not happy with and then it'll hit you at the end. Yeah. How are you with the anxiety of failure? How are you with, with sitting down and going, I wrote a piece of gaga today? Yeah, it's like, I think what's very important actually is to get past that, that anxiety about, about something not working out for you on the page. Because the, the worst thing that can happen really is that you become kind of skilled and adept. Mm -hmm. And like I know there's a certain type of short story I can write now. Yeah. You know, there's, a, there's a, a short story probably set in a pub with loads of funny dialogue and something fucking strange and surreal happening about two-thirds of the way through. And I could turn it out and it'd be grand, you know, but, but it'd be too a, easy that, for that me. That comfort is terrifying. There, there would be discomfort there about it, and I'd prefer to do something that causes difficulty for me all the time. So it was really hard to put a fucking one of the Beatles into a book and try and make it convincing. So you, know, you have to 
give yourself challenge these, yourself yeah. yeah completely and push yourself that the only was, way you um, keep making anything that's worthwhile that's what David Bowie used to say he, David Bowie used to say that like if in a new project you're not com- you're not stepping out of a comfort zone then yeah. forget about the fucking project hmm. do you know what I mean and I would completely subscribe to that because it's in that fear and that potential for failure and that learning new shit hmm. that's what triggers the good shit inside you when yeah. you start going into comfort zones yeah I think me, write, writing stories or writing songs or drawing pictures or anything any cart, sort of creative pursuit is always kind of laced with anxiety but what you realise after a while is that if you're worried you're working you know Yeah. if you're worried and freaked out about it that means that you're actually fucking doing it you know, the worst thing you th- that you can be th- is thinking, "Oh, this is going great." Yeah. You know, this is, oh, this is, I, I like to look at this. You know, that's yeah. that's debt. You know, that's a disaster. If you're kind of going, "Oh, Jesus, this is more fucking bollocks again," <laughs> it's probably going all right, and you probably get there. Four years of days like that, and you'll have another book. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, um, but it's strange. It, it it is. I don't know if you found this, but I find it is, and, and and like, even though you're, you know, you're sat in your hole writing it's kind of hard physical work in a funny way because you're kind of tense and kind of bunched up a bit do you write with a pen or with a laptop i i i do first drafts with a kind of a pen longhand because i think it just a, it slows down the process just a little bit to get a bit more care into it i find with if i'm typing on a on a, on a computer screen there's just something about the, the little happy tappity tap that gives the sensation of thought without actually thinking I get you. If, if that makes any sense i don't I, i'm terrified of my my hand just getting sore and then having an idea in my head and not being able to write it so I have to type. You type it. I, I type, D- yeah. Dylan Morn, do you know the, the comic? Dylan has a, a, no, a novel that's about 800 pages long and he wrote it longhand and he, I was talking to him about it. He said, it's an absolute fucking masterpiece but I can't read it. I can't... <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't make it out. So, you know, it's kind of... It's kind of that. Um, you touched on something there about Beetlebone and it correlates to a question that I was asked online about it. Some fella says, I didn't take anyone's name, so some fella says, uh, what amazes me about Beetlebone is the amount of research that you had to do, but how did you find working with it with so little archive available? <laughs> well, I presented that like a quiz question. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, I, I, I actually did fuck all research for it because I thought, I think research when you're writing is a way not to write. It's a way of procrastinating. You yeah, know? it is. And I thought if I if I opened the cupboard, marked John Lennon Beatles, the fucking world of material would fall out. What I did do is I watched for about six months. I watched YouTube um, clips of TV interviews with him in the 70s, and I transcribed them literally line by line his speech just to try and get the. Now, did you do that as research, or was that kind before of, yeah, you knew Beatlebone was happening? Just to try and get. Oh, no, I knew it was a novel at this stage. Like it. It's, it's a weird the way it started, that book. Like, I, I was going out on my bike a lot around Clue Bay in Mayo. And, you know, and I should have been happy been out on my bike on a lovely day in County Mayo. But any time I got around Clue Bay, I got this really kind of melancholy um, feeling. And I'd start to think about um, what Saul Bellow used to call my significant dead, you know, friends who had died and family members who had lost and stuff like that. And it was this kind of debt-haunted feeling. And I thought what the fuck is causing this out here? But I knew it was the atmosphere of a novel, right? Yeah. I was going to use it for a novel. And the only thing I, I knew about Clue Bay was that John Lennon used to own a little island down yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So somehow or other, the two started coming together and I made it about him going out trying to find his island. Like, I, I did find out one great thing about this actual island he, he owned out there, that towards the very end of his life, he, he had a plan to renew the planning permission with Mayo County Council to build a house out there. And the fact that John Lennon and Mayo County Council yeah, have I know, a, I love that. having dealings yeah. with each other, yeah. I, I couldn't leave it alone then, you know. Um, and just a question there about, we'll say, the, 
the death anxiety that you experienced in that mm. area? What, what, what the fuck is that? Like, God knows. Do you reckon it was the God isolation, knows. the loneliness? God knows. Something about, the uh, I don't know, been, been beside the sea. Does anyone ever get this it when they go to the seaside? It can make insignificant. And like, there yeah. is a thing uh, within dreams. Yeah. Um, often, if we dream that the sea is in front of us, right. we're confronted with our own insignificance, you know? Yeah. There's, it's, it's actually, it's like going back to what we were talking about with the river in Limerick. Sometimes really obvious, huge kind of physical entities are so big that we can't quite see them. And if you think about the whole western seaboard of Ireland, you know, I think it's hugely affected by the fact that it's on the edge of this great fucking malevolent throbbing ocean all the time. And it affects the psychology of the people. Like I would say if you were to describe west of Ireland people in a single word, it would be rattled. Yeah, you know? yeah, 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 yeah. It's just like, yeah. the fuck is going on out here? Because they are you know? like... Yeah. And it's because of that ocean, but it's, it's something that's so huge and so very obvious that we'd never kind of think about it, really, you know? I'm um, guessing you're not a, a social media user. I'm not. Um, I just find, like, you know, I love it, and I'm always on the internet like everyone else, but But it's, you don't do social... Because I was just thinking I, there, I don't. like... When you were talking there about like, being out in the, in the yeah. wide open and you were confronted with these... It brought up these in, inner feelings of, of death anxiety and yeah, thinking about yeah. not what people would usually do in that situation is that when the death anxiety comes on, they take out the, the phone and they take a photograph of it and put it on Instagram. Right. And yeah. that relieves the death anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's what it does, you know what I mean? Mm. So you're at an advantage there. If you were on Instagram, yeah. you probably no, would have gotten a little, a little <laughs> pang yeah. of death yeah. and said, oh, there's a lovely sheep, I'll take a photograph right. of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you didn't go to the depths, you're unconscious with that yeah. darkness. I have, like, I've, I've, I, have, I have very mixed feelings about being online. I think, you know, the, in, the internet is an, is an infinitude, so it contains everything good and everything bad. It's, yeah. it's, it's all things. I, I do find where it's troublesome for writing for me is that, so, so like, a thing I've, con I've convinced myself of two things, actually. I've convinced myself that, one, there's a God, and two, he has a big lever, and that at 12 noon every day, he turns the internet on, right? So I don't have to look at it before then. Because yeah. I find if I go online... First thing in the morning, if I pick up the iPhone and start looking at stuff, I kind of go into a kind of an impatient, kind of flitty yes. mode where I'm reading really quick and I'm going from site to site. And I've, for me, that's not a good place to be. And I I'm imagine it'd be difficult then to sit down and have a bit of writing after yeah, that. Yeah, it's hard yeah. to go into it because it's a really concentrated space you're going into. So I, f I find I'd rather stay in that dream melty, spacey mode for a few hours at least and then do whatever you want with the thing for the rest of the day. But it's. Um, how, how would you think it? One thing I always wonder about is. We'd say, great art, great artists that I'd be looking up to throughout the years. Mm. How would they have gotten on if the internet was there? Like someone, all right, Joyce. Yeah. Joyce was obsessed with detail. Yeah. Obsessed with research, right? Mm. If he had Wikipedia, yeah. would he have bothered his all? This is the thing. Yeah. No, but seriously, like, and, yeah. and someone like Bob Dylan. I, like, I mean, the very fact that you can look everything up makes people not look anything up. Exactly, In a kind yeah. of a curious way, you know? So it's... Um, I don't know. I mean, like, I, I, I don't have any worries about sort of fiction, really, or storytelling, because it's a fundamental human need, because life is fucking meaningless and weird and shapeless, you know? And we tell stories to give shape and meaning to it to help us get through. So that's yeah. not going to go. That's as fundamental a need as food and drink and ceilings over our heads, you know? But I think the forms of storytelling are going to change. And I think this is, it actually goes into podcasts a lot. I think one of the reasons why you have this real explosion in podcasting now is one of the last things that can still slow down our kind of flitty, Absolutely. impatient brains is the voice. 
Is the, you, you call it the hog. The don't podcast you? hog, yeah. yeah. It's, 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 we still, we're children. We want to be told stories and we want to just go ah, into that space. As you know? well, I think that like one of the reasons podcasts explode now as well too is if you, like the average Facebook feed that you mm. flick through, it's, it's very chaotic and it's unorganized and it's not curated. So you can get, you can flick through the feed and you've got an ISIS beheading video yeah. followed immediately by a cute kitten. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. and this is too chaotic. And what a podcast does, it allows people a, a kind of a one hour meditative space yeah. to be alone with something mm. in our lives that are completely saturated by media night. It's like a medieval cloister, you know, in a yeah. church or something like that. It's like a medieval cloister. A cloister. <laughs> like a cloister. The cloister Cloister cast. is the word of the night, ladies and gentlemen. Someone has just won 500 euros. <laughs> Um, someone says, I read on Wikipedia that you have a big ego. How, how does this help your success? Yeah, I well, saw like, that on your Wikipedia yeah, page as yeah. well. I, I don't you, do... You go into shops, and if you see that your book isn't at the front, you go and change it yourself. fucking blind by his book again. Jesus, get that out of the way. No, it's, it's kind of, like I was saying a while ago, to write anything, to say you're going to write anything is an immediate expression of fucking ego. So of course, yeah. Say, you know, but it's... Um, yeah, I think... Well, yeah, why, like why the, do you the call that thing, ego and that confidence? Yeah, I, I think it's actually ambition. And, and, like, you have to have ambition for your work. If you didn't have any ambition for it, you just write the pages, ball them off, ball them up and fuck them into the river. Or and fuck a lot them of people do that, you know? Yeah. I know a lot of people, great, great writers, yeah. who just fuck it away, or they hate it, or they will yeah. never show it to anybody. Yeah. Um, and I because think, it's too self-revealing often, yeah. you know? You can't, you can't hide in fiction. In a weird way, if you're writing an essay, you can kind of hide and you can kind of strike attitudes and poses. But in fiction, because it comes from the subconscious, it all fucking comes out. That's you know? an interesting thing you said there now about essays, because people that I know will say that identify as writers, right? Mm. People who, from an early age, they were like, I want to be a writer. People who decided, I'm going to go to college and study literature and are now still trying to be writers. Mm. I found a trend with these people and the writing mm. of essays. Mm. I, it's only my only fucking, my hot take, like I'm yeah. just, you know what I mean? But I noticed that certain people will write essays as a way of protecting themselves from writing fiction. Yeah. And when I read their essays, I can say, that's, uh, that's only fiction on a floppy. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, I can see they're trying to be right. yeah, fictitious yeah, yeah. in this essay, but they're protecting themselves by calling itself an essay. Yeah. When, when you write fiction, I think all the, all the kind of, um, the real gooey, icky, strange bits they're pinned to the page and fucking wriggling for everyone yeah. to see there and there's no getting away from them and, it, and if you don't feel a bit frightened of it and a bit freaked out by what you're writing you're fucking not Absolutely. doing it right man you know, I scared the of, shit out of yeah. myself with some of the stuff I'd be yeah. writing like. yeah, yeah, yeah. but I like that I, mm. I, I, <clears throat> like I'd write stories about murderers and stuff you right. know like sure that fucking story about the two yeah. lads in Cork skinning Rory Gallagher yeah. you know <laughs> Afterwards, I'd be looking at that going, what's wrong with me, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then I would find, I'd find solace in something like the theories of, of Freud. Right, okay. Freud has a book called Civilization and Its Discontents. And in this, he was trying to rationalize the Holocaust. Hmm. And Freud's whole thing is basically, <coughs> humans are continually want a, a murder, nonstop fucking murder all hmm. the time. But the rules of society uh, keep this from us oh. via defense mechanisms. And when I write fiction about a murderer, mm. all I'm allowing that shadow side of myself through. Mm. And it stops me killing people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> yeah, kind of a release. But it's like the thing John Moriarty used to always talk about as well, the philosopher talk about, like, um, wildness within and wildness without. You know, that you had to tune in to kind of a wildness 
on, on the air and in the atmosphere to nurture the kind of natural wildness that we all have inside us. And if you don't do that, you're kind of fucked at some level as well. Yeah. Um, how do you feel about, we'd say, the, how you were on failure? Yeah, it's... it's, it's um, and what, like what, I'm what actually, is failure? What's failure to you? What, what's well, like, failure? like I, write, I, write, I write sort of... I'd say I write probably 10 or 12 short stories a year and only one or two of them will ever make it out of the house. Because yeah. I, I look at it and go, oh, shit, you know? Um, do you but, consult but do you, other people and ask them if they think it's shit? I, no, I know fairly well, but I, I do have a weird kind of, kind of ethical thing where I go, I'm going to finish everything I start on yeah. the desk. Because I think you kind of, you only learn how to finish the good ones when they come along by finishing all the bad ones. There's nothing wrong with finishing a piece of shit, yeah. Yeah, just do it. And, yeah. and, and get, a finished, get a made thing on your desk yeah. and put it away. And after a while, look at it and you might find something. In it. And I find what's often useful is you can start to weld two failed stories together yes. and make something that kind of, oh, Jesus, hang on. It's kind of starting to stand up on the desk in front of you, you know? Um, I have a thing with, like, the, the most important lessons I've learned creatively have come from failures. Mm. And... The, I, I, there's a thing I always say that like there's only one failure and it's the failure of uh, the failure of not trying because you were scared to fail yeah. that there's great value in making an absolute bollocks or something mm. because that bollocks that's sitting in front of you yeah. will one day inform something that goes right yeah and, and, and at some point you have to develop an attitude within yourself which is going to oh, fuck it I'll just do it and I'll just put it out and if people like it they like it and if they don't do you know what I mean and just mm -hmm. go for it um Willie, are you stuck for time because you're supposed to be DJing up in Jerry Flannery's blow, aren't you? <laughs> are you okay? Ten minutes? All right. Um, he, no, he's going to... We can still talk, just Willie has to go and DJ. <laughs> and then he's doing, you're doing a confirmation next week, aren't you? <laughs> you don't get confirmed when you're the baby, Willie. For fuck. <laughs> he's doing, you're doing a confirmation and he cradles a child in his arms. <laughs> you odd boy. <laughs> Willow DJ's 21 next week. Um, this is a weird one. A lot of DJs see what they do as storytelling. Do you see parallels with writing and DJing? Oh, Jesus. Yeah, that's, no, that's interesting. Like, it's kind of... Because you'll be... I, I know from reading a few of your stories now, you'll be dropping the odd reference to fucking house music and tunes. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Myself and, and friends of mine started putting on kind of... House, house nights and stuff here in the, in the early 90s and stuff, you know, so it was kind what of... What type of shit you be into? It, it was kind of... I was very influenced by going down to Cork to Sir Henry's and oh, kind of the deep Sir house Henry's, kind of stuff. Were you at any important gigs in Sir Henry's? You didn't get nervous? Well, loads of them. No, I wasn't at any The ball and chain. I had a very snobby period where I wouldn't listen to guitar for about five years. It was all kind of... Sir Henry's house music, 120 beats per minute, not more now, you know? Um, Romantony. That was the song. There was a... There was a, I remember Romantony, he did, yeah. did something with Daft Punk, but he had a song, the song was called Make This Love Right, mm. but in Cork it was known as The Ball and Chain. Right. And it was the most famous song in Sir Henry's. I, I was, fuck, I was only a sperm and you were there and you don't, <laughs> don't know the name of the song. Do you listen to music while you're writing? Yes, I Brand do. Mode, yeah. um, do you do that? I do, often stuff without words. Like, exact same, uh, I have an entire playlist. Kind of electronica stuff. Or I dub listen to the Blade Runner soundtrack. Oh wow, yeah, Vangelis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it that, makes a kind of a, an atmosphere, doesn't it, for yeah, the kind of thing? I, I love how, like, on, yeah. or a bit of Vino Maracone. Right. Yeah, yeah. And to see how that. What were you listening to when you were skinning Rory Gallagher? <laughs> Either Vangelis or Vino Maracone. <laughs> but I'm actually I'm writing my my second book at the yeah. moment now, and what I'm doing is I'm curating my playlist. Yeah. And fucking Ryuichi Sakamoto. 
Yeah. Did you ever get into him? I, I've, I've listened to loads of him. But you know what's interesting, actually, is that you can kind of engineer a mood, can't you, with yeah. the music well, in the Yeah, well, it's the, the, the cinematic. Room. Like, it's what I said to you earlier about... Uh, like, I'm, I'm halfway through Beetleborn at the moment, yeah. right? Now, I know all your fucking... Your other work, but Beetleborn is really... It's knocking me for six, right? I fucking love it. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah. In particular, when I was uh, sending you my short stories at the start, yeah. you were saying to me, you, you know, make good use of paragraphs. Yeah. Now, I didn't know what you were talking about. <laughs> so I, I hadn't heard paragraphs since leaving, sir. I was like, what does a paragraph matter? But reading fucking Beetleborn... Yeah made me understand, oh shit, now I know what he's talking about with paragraphs. It's almost a visual thing, you know, as you, you're given, you're, I, I love seeing loads of white space yeah. on a page, you know, it's, it's like, uh, it's a drink of cold water for the reader, you go, oh right, you know. Or I, it's like, um, especially if the prose style is kind of dense, and if there's a lot going on with rhythm and stuff like that, it's, it's just giving little kind of, little valleys in between, where you can, the reader kind of goes, okay. It's a 10 course meal. Yeah. It's having yeah, yeah. different courses in the meal rather than a big exactly piece of bacon so, and cabbage, yeah. you know. Yeah. <laughs> And the, what, one thing I noticed about Beetleborn too is when I, when I was first, like my background is writing TV, you know, okay, before yeah, I was yeah, writing course, uh, yeah, yeah. books, writing TV. And it looks like a script. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, it's, and a script to me is a body of text that describes the scene and then mm. some dialogue. Yeah. And you have that. And you also, you quite interestingly, you drift a little bit between first and third person. Yeah. I, I, which, I, I, it's really interesting, actually. While I've been, while I was writing the book, I was coming and going between writing scripts for for short films and films and stuff, and writing writing prose. And it's there's something about the script that's really attractive because it's present tense and it's in the moment, and there's a sense of momentum going along. And I, you, you find yourself getting, I think a lot of it is because we watch so much really fucking good television drama yeah. now. So, you know, things like the big American shows, The Wire and The Sopranos and Breaking Bad, they're really good storytelling. Have you seen the new... You're a fan of The Wire, obviously. I am, yeah, yeah. Have yeah. you seen fucking... Bollocks, what's it called? The new one. Juice. The Juice. Have you seen The Juice? Oh, no, is it good? Oh, yeah. fuck. Yeah. It's, but it, no, it's as good as The Wire. It's about, oh, um, really? it's about the pimps in New York in the 70s. Oh, Times Square in the 70s, oh, yeah. fuck me, oh, it's well. good. And Maggie Gyllenhaal's in it, and she's amazing. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's... Um, I, think, I think that makes us... That, it been in that kind of... Present tense storytelling telling makes it us very impatient with the traditional novel kind of form. Yeah. Where it's past tense and you have someone coming down the stairs yeah. and the fucker is spending three and a half pages describing the staircase and you just go, oh, come on, we can cut that past. Yeah. Our, our, our brains process story really quick and in a really sophisticated way now because we're really well trained from watching this really good television drama and just try and bring some of that technique in. Like, did you ever read? They're brilliant, like, and I, I was put off of them for a long while, the Hilary Mantel books, Wolf Hall, and Bringing Out the Bodies. I was put out because they had these big lists of characters at yeah. the front and go, oh, fuck, I won't be able to follow all this stuff, you know? But um, she described it, her, it, it's written in the present tense, and she described it as, she said, all right, I'm gonna plant a camera right in behind Thomas Cromwell's forehead, and I'm just gonna go for 800 pages. Right? And that's the technique she used. It's a really televisual technique, and it just works. It's, it's an absolute masterclass in writing fiction in the, in the present tense and about cutting out all the stuff you don't need to do anymore because it'll just annoy readers who are, just, who are really sophisticated followers of story now as it goes along. I find tenses is one thing that kind of... Like, I write from a Limerick perspective, yeah. but my editor's from Dublin. Yeah. And in Limerick, we don't really obey tenses when we speak. Yeah, that's true. I could be yeah. talking about someone over there, and I go, sure, there he was over there, over in the corner. But yeah. I'm talking about now. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I write like that, and then yeah. the people in Dublin read it and go, what's wrong with him? Yeah. I'm like, I'm just talking <laughs> fucking Limerick. Yeah. But 
whatever about tenses, right? If I, if I said to you now, right? Mm. If I said to you, right, write a 1,000 word story really quickly, mm. would you choose, like on the spot, would you choose first person or third person? I'm nearly always inclined to go third person. Third? Yeah, because I, I find first person, um, it's, you really have to trust in the voice, right? Absolutely, um, yeah. Because you, you lose the reader very quickly if they don't buy into the voice. You and lose I, what? The reader very quickly. Yeah. I just find with third person, you can kind of go into widescreen and you can kind of play God a bit more with it. And, and you, you can, can, you can you be can flowery be, with language. You can. You can, be you, can you, you can try things with language and you can try and um, make like I love world writing, build. I love writing first person because it, it allows me greater empathy yeah. into a character. Right. Like, yeah. and I do I, like that thing where I think they call it close third and we're getting very kind of uh, about it now. But where you kind of really do third person but you're really in the, in the character's brain, yeah. you know, and kind of sort of you're, you're kind of feeling everything physically in the sensation with it. Yeah. That's a big thing for me. I, yeah. I, when I'm writing, I try and do a thing called on the body, right. whereby, I don't know, if, if I step in dog shit or if I burn my hand on a stove, yeah. the first thing I'll do is I will write about it yeah. to exactly what it feels like in that moment and then drag it into a story later on. Mm. But um, what I like about first person is a lot of the stories that I would write are bordering on fantasy. Mm. Like that story that I read out there about skinning Rory Gallagher and yeah. fucking, you know, wearing a horse around Patrick Street. Yeah. Like that's completely absurd. Yeah. If I was to do that in third person, yeah. then it's science fiction. Right. But yeah. when you do it in first person and it's the, the voice of the narrator and they may be lying to you. Yeah. Or not only lying, they may be unwell. Yeah. yeah. It yeah. allows you to go into the territory of fantasy and science fiction. Yeah. But and that's what I love about Flann O'Brien. Yeah. What what I like actually about about the kind of work you're writing and all that is that it's um it starts off and it looks like it's it's kind of realism, right? Yeah. It, it is real world, but then very quickly is that okay, we're go, we're going to take this out towards the kind of really towards the edge of believability, and that's a really interesting place to go. It's you're right, you're walking a very fine line. Are they still buying into it? And, that's what. I, yeah, that's what and, I'm trying and to do. And to get away with that, you have to be really fucking willful and determined, and just go. You know, this is going to be manic and mad and sort of surreal, but but you have to totally kind of invest in it yourself. But I, I think first person is the key to it. Otherwise, yeah. it's it's science fiction. Yeah. Do you know yeah. what I mean? I'm writing a story at the moment now about... Um, it's about a fella who... He, he, his skin sheds, right? Like, mm. all our skin sheds. But he collects all his skin in bags. And he's, he's also obsessed with his computer. So he's after figuring out that he can create system restore points mm. with bags of his own skin. So then, so then he snorts bags of his own skin to revisit earlier versions of himself. Yeah. So it's a, it's a quieter, more thoughtful story than yeah. the previous <laughs> one. <laughs> well, the thing is, is like you only get away with that in first person yeah. because you have to do it through... At the end of the day, it's just some lunatic sniffing bags of his skin. Yeah. But because he himself thinks that he's revisiting versions of himself, then yeah. you get away with it. If that was in third person, yeah. it's ridiculous. It's silly. Right. Do you know? Because yeah. <laughs> it's not silly already. It's, <laughs> it's real art. Yeah. How are you, Willie? How's that? Is it you? Yeah, you good? Will we leave him open the bar? Is that a metaphor for ask the audience questions? Yeah, we'll give him a few few questions. Maybe. Does anyone yeah. want to ask a question? Like, do you want to open the bar and have a pint, or ask a question to ourselves? Which one do you want? Both. Both. You can't do fucking both. <laughs> 
All right, we'll, we'll, well, right, two questions. Two que is that fair enough, Mr. Barman? Yes. All right, one question. Now, the thing is, on the last podcast that I did, we, we don't have the audience mic'd, so if you ask a question, uh, we're going to repeat what that question is. So what, what is the first question, sir? What you? Willie? I'm only joking. <laughs> <laughs> so for the listeners at home, the question from the audience was, what disappoints you? Yeah. That's a good question, sir. It's a really good question. And I'd say, actually, it it's, goes back to something I was saying earlier on. If, it's, it's, if I've written a story or a piece or anything where it looks like I've just been kind of jumping through my hoops, you know, if it's, if it's something where... I've become adept at a particular type of world and I've just done that again. And it, might, it, might, it might be a fine story in its own regard, but it's, it's done nothing new for me. I have to answer the exact fucking same because I've only written one book and I'm on my second one now and what makes it more difficult is this time I'm going, oh shit, have I done that already? Mm. You know, so that's the shtick. One person with their hand up, a bit of manners. <laughs> Are you happy? I'm really happy. I'm kind of... <laughs> I find for me, actually, that happiness tends to be kind of um, retrospective. I'm, I'm kind of never really particularly happy at, in the moment, at the time. But as soon as, like, I'm finished something or I leave someplace, I go, oh, jeez, that was great. I was, I was really happy back there. On a day-to-day -day level, I'm kind of moaning a lot and giving out a bit and fucking grizzling. But then you realise, oh, geez, yeah, that was, that was a great period of my life, you know what I mean? That's, I get uh, a bit of that as well. Now, I'm yeah. all right with my here and now happiness because, like, I, I actively try and do it yeah, as part yeah. of my mental health. I'll try mm. and meditate. And I'll, like, if, even if I'm having that pint there, like, I don't just passively drink that pint. I notice the sensations of the bubbles and the tang on my right. tongue, and I enjoy that pint. I thought you know? that was what you were doing, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's part of what I do to, yeah. to be actively aware yeah. of happiness in the moment because yeah. I'm happy that I'm drinking this lovely pint. I have mixed feelings about the whole mindfulness thing. I think, I think there's a lot to be said for it but there's also a great amount to be said for mindlessness. <laughs> right? <laughs> How about for... But seriously, like, about just going to that place where you just go, oh, fuck it, you know? Yeah, I, yeah, I'm yeah, here yeah. I'm just going to deal with things and I'm not going to oh, look in too much. I think there's an awful lot to be said for that mindful fucking patterns that that people work at, but the, the, the other side of it is not to be forgotten. Either. Well, I'm a man who likes to smell his own farts. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> on that but note. <laughs> on that uh, nostalgic happiness thing, yeah. do you find that, uh, I often find that if, I, if I'm drinking or, mm. or smoking a bit of Baldy, yeah. that like, it retrospectively takes me back to uh, previous memories. Of it allows me to time travel empathically. Yeah. Do you find that? I, I think actually it's, it's, it's really interest in the way writing fiction or writing stories has an awful lot in common with nostalgia. And if you think about it, like we're not nostalgic for every moment and period in our lives. There's just certain times and events and places that we go, oh yeah, you, you get really yeah. nostalgic about. And, and storytelling works in a similar way. You're drawn to the heat of some time or place Absolutely, or event. Yeah. Um, there's an awful lot involved, I think. Uh, who, what's your man's name? The kind of, the, the Oliver... James or something, the psychologist, talks a lot about creativity and nostalgia yeah. drawn from the same kind of pool all the time. Um, final question from me. How do you drink when you're writing? Do you, do you find substances in any way assist your writing process? Actually, Martin Amos said the best thing about marijuana and creativity. So marijuana? What are you, a guard? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> 
The Barjuela. I'm just, I'm just a slightly older generation. But he said it's, um, it's, uh, it's brilliant for making notes, but it's not great for the actual sitting down yeah. and writing the story. Yeah. Um, I think the pint of beer, the glass of wine is great when you're finished. But at the time, it can just make you think, oh, this is going fucking swimmingly. Okay. On the page, you know, when and it might be. And then you're talking your hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, we'll wrap it up now because you want to open a bar and DJ Willie or DJ has to go and DJ somewhere else. So uh, God bless Kevin Barry. God bless Dolans. And best of luck to everyone. Cheers. Monday. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 